Welcome to the 246th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today is a discussion of the COVID crisis in elder care with Lori Smitanka and Jasmine Travers. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live at its new time weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, March 25th, 2021, there are 2,746,147 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. Death toll in the United States from COVID-19 has climbed to 545,282. 15,540 people have died in Ecuador from COVID-19, and the death toll in the Philippines from COVID-19 has now reached 13,039. The way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, a generous and caring person, well-known nurse and nursing home aide, Sarita Quinn, dies of COVID-19. This was published in the Des Moines Register, March 25th, 2021, by Amber Momond. Sarita Quinn wore her personal mantra on her arm. Emblazoned in black ink and adorned with decorative flowers, she could always look down and see it right there on her forearm. Loyalty is everything. Her, the phrase was a reminder to stay true in life and work and to keep friends and family close, fight for them and offer them support when they were in need, always. You don't have to call them 24 seven, but you have to make sure you're there for that person, said Shamara Quinn, Sarita's daughter. Sarita repeated the beloved motto so much that her loved ones came to embrace its essence too. Loyalty is everything for all of us, Shamara said. Now facing a lifetime without their matriarch, the mantra lives on with Sarita's friends and family. After fighting COVID-19 for about a month, Sarita died on December 21st from complications of the disease at the University of Iowa Hospital in Iowa City. She celebrated her 45th birthday in the hospital just 10 days earlier. A Quad Cities native, Sarita attended Davenport's Central High School and Hope Baptist Church in Bettendorf. She married Felix Quinn in 2009, and the new family settled in Eldridge. Sarita, a nurse, was a well-known caregiver at several area nursing homes. But in March, Sarita left her job at an assisted living facility. With severe asthma, she just couldn't take a chance on getting the virus, her daughter said, but it found her anyway. Sarita was very close to all four of her children, as well as her stepchildren, but Shamara and her mother shared a special bond. Shamara wasn't in her own room, she was in her mom's. They'd pass time swapping stories about their days and imagining their futures. When Shamara's, 
when Shamara had trouble finding her path, she would always go to her mother for inspiration and advice. During her senior year of high school, Shamara struggled to find the motivation to graduate, but her mom pushed her forward. She would tell me, I know you're capable of it. You're my daughter. I know you can do anything, Shamara said. If you hear it from your mom, you know that you've got to do it. And when Shamara walked across the stage and collected her diploma, Saritha cheered at the top of her lungs. She was the first person I saw, and I just ran to her, Shamara said. She wasn't at work or at home. Saritha enjoyed fishing, taking walks, and wine with friends. Eternally happy and habitually helpful, Saritha had a smile that would light up the room, family said. She was strong and independent and just plain caring, her daughter added. Saritha will be remembered as very outgoing and generally loved and cared about everyone, her family wrote in her obituary. In the wake of her death, a local community group set up a GoFundMe account to help family with funeral expenses. The fund started with a goal of $5,000, but within a day, more than $19,000 had been raised, and since then, the funds have grown to more than $25,000. I think a lot of people knew my mom, Saritha's son, Marquan, told the Quad City Times. My friends knew her as a really funny, outgoing person who enjoyed having them in her home. My mom was a generous and caring person, he added. I just had no idea the community would show this kind of love and caring for her and my family. Sarita was diagnosed with COVID-19 the week of Thanksgiving, soon after she was sedated and put on a ventilator. Just a few days before Christmas, her family gathered at her bedside to say goodbye. I held her hand and I just told her that she did everything right as a mom and she never failed us, Shamara said. We were going to be okay. Sarita couldn't speak, but the gathered knew at least one of the pieces of advice she'd want to leave. It was written right there on her arm. Loyalty is everything. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest today to you. Lori Smetanka is the executive director of the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care, the leading national nonprofit advocacy organization representing consumers receiving long-term care and services in nursing homes, assisted living facilities, and home and community settings, community-based settings. Lori has testified before Congress and served on federal task forces, technical expert panels, and working groups on long-term care issues. From 2004 to 2016, she served as the director of the National Long-Term Care Ombudsman Resource Center, providing technical assistance, training, and support to the 53 state and more than 570 local long-term care ombudsman programs across the country. She received a BA from Indiana University of Pennsylvania and a JD from the University of Dayton School of Law. My second guest is Jasmine Travers. Dr. Jasmine Travers is an assistant professor at New York University Rory Myers College of Nursing. Her career is dedicated to designing and conducting research to improve health outcomes and reduce health disparities in vulnerable older adult groups using both quantitative and qualitative approaches. As a health services researcher, she has leveraged many data sets to investigate these issues and has published widely on the topics of aging, long-term care, health disparities, workforce issues, and infections. Prior to joining the faculty at NYU, Dr. Travers completed a postdoctoral fellowship with the National Clinical Scholars Program at Yale University 
and a T32 funded postdoctoral fellowship at the new Cortland Center for Transitions and Health at the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. She completed her doctoral training in health services research with a specialization in gerontology at Columbia University School of Nursing. Lori Smetanka and Jasmine Travers, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Thank you. Thanks. Nice to be here. Yes. Thank you, Scott, for having me. I'm glad to be here with Lori. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just find out where you're calling in from, what the pandemic is looking like there today, and perhaps what the vaccination situation is looking like there today. And Jasmine, can I start with you on that, please? Sure, sure. So I am calling from New York City, New York. Uh, the pandemic situation over here, uh, I would say, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we were like the, the known as the epicenter, right? And then we started doing better than the rest of the country. And then now we're starting to do, um, you know, we're, we're starting to go downhill a little bit. Um, Manhattan, where I am, we're doing a little bit better. So in total, New York has 1.8 million uh, cases and 49,231 uh, deaths from the coronavirus. New York City particularly has 817,000 of those cases and 30,793 of those deaths. And just kind of thinking about the two-week average, we've had an increase of 37% in, of uh, coronavirus cases and then 29% increase of deaths. So uh, with, when thinking about that and why this is going on, for one thing, we haven't opened up uh, vaccine eligibility to the entire group of adults like other states have done. Uh, in regards to where we stand, though, with the vaccination rate, New York has had 27% of our uh, individuals given one dose of the COVID vaccine and 13% have been given uh, both doses. And that's in comparison to 26% of the U.S. that has been given one dose and 14% has been fully vaccinated. So we've, we've, we're doing a little bit better with vaccinations for one dose when compared to the United States. Uh, just recently this week, though, we have lowered our vaccine eligibility to the age of 50. So again, we haven't opened it to all adults, but um, we're making our way. That question of, of when it will be made available to all adults in the state of New York is such a difficult one because it's also wrapped up as usual with New York with the sort of political controversy around the governor. It doesn't seem to matter who the governor is, that, that that's kind of the way things work in, in New York. I don't know how... Um, how much has have those issues been vexing to people there in New York and particularly people on the front lines, Jasmine, or they're just doing the job and the politics will take care of itself? When you say vexing, what do you mean, Scott? So troubling to them that, you know, the vaccine isn't fully available as it might be in some other states and sort of questions around, you know, that are being brought around the governor's office as well. Oh, of course, you know, people want to be able to get the vaccine. You know, we have people coming in. Um, I, I also work on the front lines administering the vaccine. And what you've been hearing on the street is that there's extra doses in the evenings, right? So there are long lines of people just trying to get these extra doses. And these extra doses aren't like uh, hundreds of doses aren't even in, even in the tens. They're probably like three doses or four doses. Mm, really? We'll have 
lines going out the door just for those three doses. It's incredible uh, where it ends up being prioritized by age, right? But we'll still have people who are in their 20s, in their 30s, lined up for the doses. But if there's someone in their 50s and then lined up for the doses, they're going to get it. Um, So that's just a little example of Mm. people who want uh, the vaccine. There's people who are having various events, you know, over the next couple of months. I also was working with a woman who's getting married next month. And she was like, oh my goodness, like, I just really want to get the vaccine. I I have 40 people coming. A lot of them are vaccinated, but uh, I want to be safe as well. And the thought that you can't even provide the vaccine to this person who is in her late twenties is just, you know, it's, it's disheartening. Um, But at the same time, recognizing the need to, adhere to policies currently and really prioritize those groups that that we said are in specific phases. So it's it's a lot of tension, mm-hmm. uh, I would say. And people, of course, you know, they they want the vaccine. And when you see other states doing things, it's like, why can't we do that? Why can't we open it up to everyone, especially given that the Johnson Johnson is um, on the market now as well? Right. Well, thank you for that. Let, let me bring Lori in. Uh, Lori, same question. Where are you calling from and, and how is it looking there? Sure. I'm calling from Rockville, Maryland, and I'm just north of D.C. And here in Maryland, um, we've had about 400 and 400,000 cases and a little over 8,000 deaths um, in the state. And um, the county that I'm in, Montgomery County, has had a little bit higher numbers than some other areas around the state because we are so close to D.C. and uh, main thoroughfares going through. So some of our counties are, are a little bit higher as ours has. Um, so we also haven't um, opened up as much as even other parts of the state have. Um, there are still some pretty um, significant restrictions that have been put into place, although just recently, um, the governor um, and the county executive um, have opened up for limited indoor dining again um, in some areas in the state. Um, but our county is a little bit behind um, where the state is usually. We're about a week behind um, where the state is in terms of how things have opened up. Um, vaccination rates um, here, we similarly to what Jasmine said in her area, we've got about um, 28% that have had the first dose and about 14% that are fully vaccinated in our state. Um, but again, in Montgomery County, um, we've seen a, um, a demand for the vaccine um, is higher than supply. And um, people have um, been really frantically looking for how to get it um, because um, we're one of the bigger counties too in the state and the doses um, have been distributed more evenly um, in terms of numbers instead of by population. So so that was a challenge for a while, but um, the governor has assured us that additional doses are coming. They've opened up some mass vaccination sites in the state um, and they've said that um, pretty much any adult who wants a vaccine will be able to get we'll be able to at least get an appointment for one by April 27th. We'll all be eligible by April 27th. So it's coming. That that anticipation is uh, excruciating. Um, and uh, it's so interesting. I mean, I'm in South Korea where the discourse around getting the vaccine is, is very different because the infection control has 
has worked here. So it's not that mm -hmm. people aren't anxious to have it, but the way that you're relating the story there is is um, it's really moving because you can imagine people literally calling around and trying minute by minute almost to find out what's happening. Lori, just to follow up quickly, I've also been fascinated to follow um, this pandemic story in a place like where you are, where you have Virginia and Maryland and then the District of Columbia all coming together. And as is, as it was earlier in the pandemic, those rules can be quite different at different times around lockdown, what's open, what's not open. It sounds like the similar kind of thing is playing out with with vaccination. It's, it's a region that's integrated, but then at this time, you find out there are important, quite local differences. There absolutely are. And um, because of the particular area that I live in, the DMV, we call it the DMV area, um, it, whilst there have been um, limitations on movement between um, the states and you know, where people have been asked to quarantine or isolate themselves if you're moving across borders, that doesn't really work here um, because, you know, so many people from Maryland and Virginia work in the district and vice versa, um, that there's a lot of coming and going and back and forth. So it, it's it's been a real challenge. Well, thank you for that. And, and let's turn to the conversation that so many aspects of this I want to ask you both about. And Jasmine, I'm going to start with you. And it's it's really basic question, basically, for myself, although other listeners may um, benefit by this, just to kind of get a general sense about the different types of facilities that both of you, I think, study on. Jasmine, and I'll ask you about this first. What are the different options out there in the United States for older people who need care? What Sort of break it down for us a little bit, if you would. Sure, sure. And I just wanted to add real quick, Lori, I'm very familiar with the DMV. I'm actually from uh, Gaithersburg, Maryland. So Montgomery oh, County. We're uh, neighbors. Though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are neighbors. Uh, so yeah, my passion is long-term care across settings. So when we think about the settings of long-term care, there's home and community-based care, there's nursing homes, and there's assisted living. I've been spending a lot of my time within nursing homes the past year because of, you know, the pandemic. And that's actually where I started my focus when I um, began my research uh, about eight years ago. But um, when thinking about these different settings, so nursing homes, that's probably going to be the most highest care um, need, right? So these are older adults who may need multiple um, assistance with activities of daily living. So that is uh, feeding, toileting, dressing, um, mobility, those types of activities that they're going to need support for, or they could have um, cognitive needs, um, social support needs that they're not able to get in the community. Within nursing homes, they're going to have two different layers. They're going to have your skilled nursing facilities and then your nursing home. So the skilled nursing facilities are for people who need short-term care. That's what we call it. That's less than 100 days of care. And those are for people who need more of the rehabilitation. So they might have gone into the hospital, broke their hip, got a hip replacement, and then now go into the nursing facility for some physical therapy so that now in a couple of days, they'll be able to return in the community. The nursing homes are those uh, who are going to be staying there for more long term. So they need more of the custodial care as opposed to the skilled level of care, just more long-term support with those activities of daily living that I spoke about before. And then home and community-based care can range. So you can receive care in your home setting where an aide, nurse, um, physician, nurse practitioner comes in your home, provides care assistance, uh, medical needs, or um, also activities of daily living support. 
Or you might go in addition to that, go to a setting like a an adult day uh, care setting or um, programs of all inclusive care for the elderly. Um, you could go to where you receive comprehensive care uh, over a number of couple of days and just not even over those couple of days in general, they're responsible for all of your care needs. So these are to keep people out of nursing homes who would probably be eligible, who are definitely eligible for nursing home stays. So those are some of the uh, settings. And then there's the assisted living. Um, so assisted living is in between the home and community-based care and nursing homes. So these are people who need some type of support, so not able to remain in their homes independently um, typically, but they wanna maintain a social active lifestyle, may require some assistance, but they are mostly independent. So they don't need access necessarily to 24 hour nursing care or nursing home stays are going to need access to 24 hour uh, nursing care. Just to follow up, Jasmine, in recent years, what kinds of trends have you seen in terms of people availing themselves of those different kinds of options? Yeah, no, great question, Scott. Uh, so uh, an area where I'm very much interested in, you introduced it in my bio, was kind of this these like vulnerable populations. And I've been looking at these trends in nursing home use and nursing home access. So specifically when thinking about populations, when we look at our racial ethnic minority populations, such as the Black and Latinx uh, community, traditionally, historically, they've used informal care services. So care services in the home provided by family members, for example, or friends, right? Um, where we would see more of the nursing home stays being used by um those from white races, where now over the years, we're actually seeing an increase in nursing home use among Black and Latinx populations and a decrease in uh, nursing home use among the white population. And what we're seeing specifically is that it's it's not even just like this increase and decrease, it's more of a disparities in access to um, preferred options also. So we're seeing that white older adults are moving into preferred settings such as assisted living where uh, black older adults and his, Latinx older adults are moving into these nursing home settings and are experiencing disparities in care, disproportionate care, pressure ulcers, in, um, increases in pressure ulcers, restraint use, antipsychotic medications, not receiving vaccinations. So those types of things that they're experiencing. And then on top of that, the actual access to nursing homes in their communities are closing because they're more likely to be in nursing homes of poor care that are for profit or have an increased proportion of Medicaid residents where we'll talk about, I'm sure about Medicaid mm -hmm. and, you know, funding and, and all of those types of issues. But that's kind of the whole, uh, or some of the trends that we've been seeing in regards to use and access where um, on top of uh, certain communities needing more access to care because they don't have that same type of care that they once had in the homes because of you know family members working needing to work outside of the homes and having multiple um, you know uh, responsibilities or seeing an increased access and increased use in nursing homes and uh, decrease in preferred options. Lori, just to bring you in and build on what Jasmine's been talking about here, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, how regulation works, who has oversight of these different kinds of sites and facilities. And I guess we'd also need to 
get a general sense of what they cost, although I'm sure that's highly variable across the United States and around the world, but maybe there's some general sense of of Mm -hmm. how they're regulated and and what it takes to keep people in these kind of facilities. Sure. So, um, you know, so much of our system is driven by the way it's financed um, and and structured that way. Um, We have Medicare and Medicaid that um, is available to people who um, the Medicare is generally for people who need skilled care, as Jasmine said, going in for short term into a nursing home. Um, And then we have Medicaid, which is um, often available for people who might need longer term um, supports. But it's really very focused on the institutional based model right now, um, where nursing homes are um, are certified for Medicare and or Medicaid, um, the majority of them are, and that's really the preferred system according to our financing model at this point. Um, So most people um, find themselves ending up in those settings, even though they may not want to be there. where we've seen that um, there's more people wanting to stay at home or be in community-based settings, um, but the, they're so expensive that, and the, the financing models haven't kept up with that. We're seeing trends move in that direction where we're seeing greater accessibility for Medicaid in community-based settings or in assisted living right now, but it doesn't meet up with demand and it doesn't often generally cover the full range of services that people need or even the housing that people need. Um, So we're still really um, imbalanced in that respect um, uh, in terms of how people access the services. Nursing homes are regulated at the federal level. Medicare and Medicaid are federal programs, um, and so they are certified at that level. And right now, nursing home care is generally about $85,000 a year to $100,000 a year um, for care. Um, For a semi-private room, it's about $85,000 and up to $100,000 for a private room. Um, And most people rely on Medicare or Medicaid in order to live in those settings. Assisted living, other types of congregate care like personal care homes or even home care um, are more licensed or focused at the state level where it's each state sets um, its own policies, its own rules for licensure, for regulation. Um, So as you can imagine, the requirements vary widely across states in terms of what's available, what's allowed, and then the costs um, with the congregate care or the home care settings vary significantly based on where you are and what services you need. So just to follow up and make sure I understand, thank you for that. So nursing homes are regulated at the federal level, and that that regulation is driven because of the funding model, Medicare or or Medicaid for long-term care. So then just to go a little further with this, where does the state and federal regulation overlap, or where does one leave off and the other picks up? Well, so the oversight of nursing homes um, is a state-federal partnership, and it's generally through the Medicaid system. Um, Mm -hmm. So despite the fact that when nursing homes get certified for Medicare or Medicaid, they agree to meet certain federal requirements, Um, but there's there are partnerships with the states in order to oversee and monitor that. So there's um, agreements with each state um, where the they have state surveyors who will go in and assess um, to ensure, <clears throat> excuse me, that nursing homes are uh, meeting quality standards, for example. So just to um, follow up on this, because I think it's been, uh, and I'd like to hear from both of you on, on this, and Jasmine, let me ask you, 
first. I mean, there have been so many reports and the statistics, the aggregate statistics around COVID-19 infection rates um, in nursing homes are staggering. But I sometimes get a little lost in the coverage because there seems to be, you know, it's been rough in all of these different kinds of settings that you were talking about, Jasmine. I mean, I think worse um, the worst has been in, in nursing homes, but older Americans across the board have suffered terribly in COVID. So I guess I'd like to engage a discussion with both of you about these different kinds of settings and, and why has it been so bad in these places? Jasmine? <laughs> uh, so, so just to give you some um numbers really quickly. And I know we've heard, you know, some of these numbers very often, but as of March 4th, there were 174,000 residents uh, from long-term care facilities that have died from COVID, which makes up a little bit more than a third of all of the COVID deaths, although they make up less than 1% of the population. And when thinking about the cases, uh, they've only made up this group in nursing homes only made up 5% of the cases. And Scott, you talked about, you know, older adults in general, right? So we see an issue within nursing homes and then we see an issue within the older adult population across the board. So in all settings, um, older adults have accounted for 80% of our country's COVID-19 related deaths which make up only about 14% of the COVID cases. So, you know, why, why is this the case, right? Um, what went wrong? There's, there's a number of things. And I mean, I could list so many things. One of the main things that I'm going to start off with, though, is ageism and the devaluation of our older adults, which is going to capture the whole gamut, right? It's going to capture mm-hmm. nursing homes and out in the community as well. Uh, we don't care for our older adults and those who care for our older adults. Uh, if the same crisis was happening in our childcare facilities, I'm quite sure that efforts to guarantee safety to this population would have been prioritized and accelerated. There wouldn't it, it wouldn't have gone this this long or to this extent, right? And then we think about if we go just in, in, in more of a granular, if we look at nursing homes, right? Nursing home residents, they're gonna be typically older adults with high levels of chronic illness and impairment. So they're going to be susceptible to severe complications and mortality from COVID-19. Yes, that is the case, right? Um, but when thinking about nursing homes, unlike the hospital, that's someone's home. These residents live in close quarters with one another. So it's going to be quite challenging to quarantine residents once they are sick. And then you have caregivers, the nursing home workers, aides, who they move from one room to another to assist the residents, which increases the spread or the, the chance to spread for infect, spread infections. Then we had issues when it came to additionally with the workforce, right? Um, And the biggest problem was when we looked at the community spread. So the community spread and the size of the facilities. So depending on what was going on in the community, that's what we saw was going on in within the nursing homes. Hmm. When we look at the specific composition and um, the racial ethnic um, composition of various communities, for example, if essential workers you know, were uh, living in communities that were increased uh, racial ethnic minorities, 
we would see higher COVID cases and then higher um, likelihood of people working in essential positions. So this also increased and exposed them to infection, which these, and also these workers lived in crowded conditions where any virus brought home would be easily passed through extended families and then, you know, therefore going back into these um, settings. So it's, it's primarily what was going on in the community and then now bringing it back into the nursing home settings and then not having the resources and the supports uh, within nursing homes that, for example, hospitals had. And, and I know we were all stretched, right? When thinking about hospitals, hospitals were stretched as well. But nursing homes were um, stretched by far, you know, multiple times when compared uh, to the hospital setting. And then thinking about the infrastructure within nursing homes and the need for nursing home workers to work multiple jobs because of the low pay. So these structural inequities that we're seeing in nursing homes. So if you need to work multiple jobs and that increases one's risk by being at, for example, another nursing home institution and being asymptomatic on top of that. So spreading the virus from one place to another also increase the risk. I, I would add to that, though, too, that in addition to everything Jasmine said, which I agree with, um, the nursing homes also were very ill-prepared to mm-hmm. handle any sort of crisis like this. Um, what we've seen is um, that nursing homes generally don't have enough staff available to provide adequate care for the residents, and that became even more of a crisis during the pandemic. Um, and there's been a history of um, con- problems and concerns with um, infection prevention and control protocols in nursing homes, where significant percentages of nursing homes had year after year um, deficiencies cited against them for not following proper infection control pr- um, protocols. So there, um, that was another factor, I think, as to why we saw such problems in these facilities, because while certainly the community spread um, did play a part in the likelihood and incidence of COVID getting into a facility, um, it was a factor in the spread in the facility. We also saw that nursing homes that had done better jobs with staffing, for example, with staff ratios in terms of the the makeup of staff that were available, um, as well as those that prioritized infection control protocols did better in the long run um, than other nursing homes did. Lori, can I just stay with this for a second? Because this this idea that nursing homes were ill-prepared to handle a crisis, that makes sense to me, but at the same time, it doesn't, because I just don't, I don't know, with an easily predictable public health emergency of this type, why, why not? And particularly maybe on that regulatory side, why had regulators not been making higher demands of nursing homes to demonstrate that they could meet, as you just said, the sort of staffing capacity needs um, in this in this kind of a case? That's been a longstanding issue. And, and that's actually one of the things that we've seen throughout the pandemic are some of the, the long-term systemic problems we've seen in long-term care facilities really um, had the spotlight shown on them during this pandemic. <clears throat> and so the lack of preparedness is has been an issue that 
I think we've been dealing with for a number of years. Um, it really started back around Hurricane Katrina when we saw um, so many nursing homes were ill-equipped to handle that type of emergency. And there's been a lot of emphasis and focus on emergency preparedness in nursing homes through the years, but we haven't quite had um, the, the enforcement of standards I think that we needed in order to ensure um, that the nursing homes actually were prepared. And, and ironically, um, there were new um, regulations that were issued for nursing homes around emergency preparedness in 2016. And one of the new provisions in there was for um, nursing homes to have a plan in the event of a pandemic, um, such as this one that had occurred. And unfortunately, I think too many um, may not have had an, an adequate plan put into place. That doesn't excuse the failures of the systems outside of the nursing homes um, to play a part too, in terms of lack of support that they were getting during the pandemic. But the nursing homes do have some level of responsibility here also. Just so, I mean, this is, again, a kind of a naive question, but just to, and Lori, I'll put it to you first and then Jasmine to you. Do, we, do I need to understand that as, a, as an issue that, that these nursing homes are running budgets very close to the bone? And so when you ask them to do additional things like be prepared for emergency staffing or to make an emergency management plan, that they literally don't have the resources to do it? Or do I need to understand this as um, this is a profit-centered um, sort of model and, you know, they've been keeping their profits where they wanted them to be. And, and so they chose between profit and care. And I put that in a binary, so maybe that's not the right way to think about it. But it, I guess I feel like in some sense, it's, it's inexcusable if we could put a dollar figure of profit on this and say, this has just been uh, a profit calculation and they could have been prepared. Well, I think there are multiple factors. I, I think in terms of um, the accountability of standards, you know, th that has not been sufficient. We need better accountability, holding the nursing homes accountable for meeting standards. That absolutely is something that we need to focus on. But in terms of how they spend their money, that needs much more transparency and accountability as well. That's actually was the um, topic of a hearing just today in the, in the House of Representatives where they looked at um, the money that nursing homes receive, and um, you know, the what we see from this industry is they they often ask for more money, um, but we need a better sense of are they using it properly for care and ensuring that money that they do receive is directed towards care. Um, we don't have really those answers right now. So what we have been asking for is much greater transparency and accountability for how they're spending the dollars that they get. Um, for some, we are concerned that there is um, uh, um, use of the money for profit centers, particularly when we're looking at private equity firms that are increasingly buying up nursing homes. When they go in, we see that they're cutting staff, they're cutting costs, they're cutting supplies, which leave nursing homes even less prepared. Um, but just across the board, we need much greater transparency and accountability for how the money is used. Jasmine, just giving you opportunity if you want to comment on, on any part of that. And then I also sort of want to bring 
the essential workers into this discussion as well, talking about nursing staff and, and physicians and maintenance staff in these kind of facilities and the stresses they've been under. Yeah, no, I think um, Lori really hit the needle. Uh, when thinking about this regulation, right, and then this, this need to have emergency planning um, and this need to have, you know, certain amount of staff and, and all of these other regulations that are in place. And then you say, well, what happens here, right? And thinking about the historical um, traditions that we've seen with infection control and how nursing homes have done poorly, right? They're, they're constantly cited for infection um, deficiencies. So what is going on here, right? Where it's, it's the accountability piece that Lori talked about and this understanding or this idea that, you know, like what are the regulations even doing to begin with? It's something that... Um, Nursing homes are just looking at it as something to gain, right? That they 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 just like figure out how can we, you know, um, meet what will give us the check off and say that we're good to go. But it's nothing meaningfully um, being changed and being addressed, right? And these are why we see these issues. In uh, Lori talks about Hurricane Katrina. And this, this Hurricane Irma in Florida, where um, in the nursing homes, a number of people died because, you know, there weren't generators. There were, you know, there weren't different things mm-hmm. in place. And when you go back and you look and, and you say, oh, well, they were cited for this back then. And OK, well, then whatever happens? Why wasn't the you know necessary things put in place to fix what was supposed to be fixed? And this is continuously going on. Right. And then we we get we get, you know, all flabbergasted. Right. And Scott, you're like, oh, well, you know, why does this happen? You know, what's going on here? And it's these things that we're just not um, intentionally following up on when thinking about these regulations. Are the regulations doing what they're supposed to be doing or are they perpetuating, you know, just continuous bad care? Um and then just uh, another thing, it's like the consistency between these inspections across states, right, mm-hmm. where it differs or or you go in and you're like, oh, this is already a good actor. We already know they do do well. So you don't look into these issues as intensely as you would um, another nursing home. But the same things are going by. And then the last thing that I'll say real quick is um, a, a, a report came out, I think it was from The New York Times a couple of weeks ago. Right. Where and, and this was just it was it was so sad just for me to read. I was almost in tears when reading about a nursing home and a resident who was raped by a, um, a healthcare worker, unfortunately. And this was reported. And in the um, report, it was cited as like a low harm, you know, and and you, and you think, like, how could something like that? Be cited as a low harm, and um, in in this whole um, it, it, um, kind of um, in the the New York Times, you know, they're they're saying how this often happens. You know, things that are are detrimental are just cited as as just low. You know, uh, so mm-hmm. so these are these are the issues that we need to really address when thinking about this accountability that Lori. Um, discussed and this transparency and the need for consistency and really, you know, meaningfully thinking about what needs to be changed and what does that look like. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a terrible story that that Jasmine just related and Lori. I mean, it also brings me back to something Jasmine said earlier, which is that she puts a lot of this at a sort of broader societal level on ageism, 
And I can't help but wonder, I'd like to sort of get your your thoughts on this, that why aren't these things traditionally um, at the top of policymakers' concerns? I mean, the AARP is one of the most powerful, well, I'm going to say this, but maybe you correct me and tell me I'm wrong. I, I thought the AARP was one of the most powerful lobbies in the United States. Look at voting rates. Older Americans vote at much higher rates than younger Americans do um, in uh, among middle class white Americans, wealth accumulation, you know, it really picks up as people move towards um, retirement age and just beyond. So just looking at that, one would think there'd be commission after commission after commission looking at these problems. But it, it, that's not what I'm hearing from you. No, that that's not what happens. Um, and, you know, I think ageism really is a factor here, as as Jasmine had said, Um and, and the other piece of it is that the nursing home lobby is also extremely powerful across the country, both at the state level and at the federal level. And um, they have a lot of high paid lobbyists that are constantly interacting with policymakers and pushing their own agendas. Um, and so we don't see the the attention and, and the accountability that we absolutely need to see being put into place. We do need to see that. Um, you know, there, most of the focus has been on <clears throat> in long-term care, um, in healthy aging, or also in um, keeping people at home. That's where the attention has been spent probably over the last 20 years, where there's not been that attention paid to real quality in nursing homes um, in that setting. And um, people have suffered as a result of it. We have high turnover. Recent reports coming out um, show that the average turnover rate in nursing homes is 100%. The turnover rate of staff in nursing homes is 100%. You can't effectively run an institution with 100% turnover in a year. And that's not only at the direct care level, but it's also high turnover in the administrative staff, in the licensed staff. Um, so it really affects the quality of care that's being provided in those settings. That turnover rate is astounding. So astounding. on average, so that means in some places people are staying a little longer, but in other places it's within a year you're having multiple that's People right, which over. makes it difficult to attract staff. I mean, there's a, you know, mm -hmm. there is a lack of um, people that have been willing to work in the system. It's a difficult job to go in and work in a nursing home. You're you're paid low. You're you don't get benefits often. Um, you, it's a very difficult job. There's often not a career ladder that's put into place. Um, so attracting people to the profession is something that we really have to be focused on, and that is one of our priorities. Um, staffing has been our top priority since the inception of our organization 45 years ago. Um, but we are putting additional emphasis on the need to pay a living wage to people that are working in long-term care to ensure that there are adequate staff on hand, because that is what's going to make the biggest difference. And not just direct care staff, but also licensed staff. Jasmine, I'd like to hear from you on that, particularly about staff and, you know, the, there are chronic issues here, obviously, even like the obituary I read, people who are having to maybe work in multiple different um, elder care facilities um, because they can't get full-time work in one of them, or maybe they're working full-time in one of them and additional hours, probably more likely, in others of them. Um, how well are we tracking stress and strain on those staffs, burnout? Um, you know, the COVID rates, there have been so many caregivers who have been sick and who have died 
probably imagine financially, there's enormous pressure on some of them, even if they were sick or maybe thought they were sick, to go ahead and go to work because it was a choice between, you know, putting food on the table or, you know, possibly making others ill. I mean, it just seems like a sort of impossible set of trade-offs here to put in front of these caregivers. Right, right, right. So in general, we don't uh, spend enough um, time looking at uh, burnout and pay enough attention to it. And it, when thinking about the long-term care setting, nursing home setting, like forget about it. You know, how much have we really brought up, you know, the burnout that these uh, nursing home workers have been experiencing when it comes to low staffing, um, chronic low staffing prior to the the pandemic, and then you know thinking about what it looked like during the pandemic, the lack of resources, and then on top of it, it's like the lack of just um, attention to what they were experiencing. Right when we were celebrating, uh, this was in New York and, and, and across some of the other states, but who was being cele- celebrated? It was the um, hospital workers, you know, as they left, you know, 7, 7 p.m., they were the ones who were being celebrated. But what was going on in the nursing homes? And specifically, I'll tell you, you know, a, a, a quick question, a quick story about my uncle. He's a nursing assistant, was working in the nursing home, ended up contracting um, COVID. And um, on, on one aspect of it, he was told to come back in the next day. He's over there, you know, in the midst of just fear. This was early on in the pandemic in April, you know, and that was the biggest thing. He lives with um, my mom, who's his sister. And then my mom takes care of a number of older adults because she does adult foster care. And that was the biggest fears within the house was to experience um, COVID in the home and everyone's high risk. And he gets COVID and it's almost like, you know, what do we do? And, and um the nursing home calls him and says, come back in the next day and we'll put you on a COVID unit. You know, what is that? And then on top of that, he had to try to navigate. My mom was calling me for support to quarantine outside of the home and hotels who were providing any type of assistance to nursing home workers said that an aide was going to receive a modified rate for for a hotel stay, which the modified rate was $100 a night. I'm thinking about 14 nights to quarantine. That's $1,400 for the two-week stay without fees. How much do nursing assistants make? On average, about $12, $13 an hour. That's about 20 something thousand dollars a year. You, where That wouldn't even, that, that doesn't even make sense. But instead we were giving physicians and registered nurses um, full hotel stays. What, you know, what are we thinking, right? Yes, I am a registered nurse. I live in New York City. They were giving free hotels. They were giving city bike memberships, Revel memberships. Um, and, you know, I was elated, but then I had to really humble myself and recognize the privilege that I had when compared to these essential workers as well who don't make, you know, um, what I make necessarily and cannot afford these things. And they didn't get the same types of resources. So that's where, how our system is set up and how mm. it creates this, um, this disproportionate just um, access to, to resources and supports where we see the need for workers to work multiple jobs and not trust, you know, the people that they work with, their supervisors or the system, because they don't feel like they're being cared for or they're being seen. What a powerful illustration 
there and what Jasmine was just talking about. Thank you for sharing that because I think it it shows sort of the failures in the thinking here that, uh, you know, you, you want to take care of essential workers, so we take care of some subset of them. But it's the same facility in which others who have been deemed sort of quasi-essential or unessential, they haven't been taken care of. And so they're coming to work, and that's one of the modes that infection spreads. So if in infection control is what you really are after, you have to sort of imagine this as a full community or full ecosystem of a of a workplace. I think that that just to, wanted to underline that, Jasmine, because I think that's a really important point to make here. And Laurie, I guess I want to sort of bring you back in on this and and see, you know, thinking a bit about what can be learned from this. That's one thing that Jasmine was just talking about. I mean, what states have done this well? I mean, can we shine a light anywhere to say, okay, there were some cases where people were prepared and we should point to that as a best practice in this moment. You don't have to be optimistic if you don't want to be. I'm not trying to force you to be, but I am trying yeah. to look for something to build on here. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, and maybe Jasmine would think differently, but I'm not sure we could point to states that have really done a great job on this. I, I think everyone struggled with it across the board, and um, you know, it was, it, it, it was an issue of the spread of COVID, but not only was COVID so deadly for the residents who lived in these facilities, the 170 plus thousand that was mentioned earlier, frankly, that's an understatement um, because so many, particularly early on, residents weren't even tested for um, COVID. Um, so that's really an undercount. But the number of people also that died of isolation as a result of the lockdowns that happened in the separation from their families and from their essential caregivers was critical. One additional report that had come out um, in November um, estimated an additional 40,000 deaths in 2020 that had not occurred in 2019. Like they were able to estimate, you know, based on looking at numbers, you can estimate about how many people were will die per year on average as just a normal course of life. And there were an additional 40,000 deaths that were um, indicated in nursing homes as of November. And we really believe that that was due to the effects of the isolation and the results of that um, because so many residents suffered severe anxiety, lost the will to live, suffered from neglect, um, from not being properly cared for, from the separation from their families. So um, residents really suffered in two ways, not just from COVID, but from the isolation and the lockdown, being kept in their room for months and months at a time. One resident that we were that we talked to regularly um, had not been out of her room in almost six months. She had not been taken for a shower down the hall for that amount of time, was maybe given a bed bath a couple times a week. Um, they wouldn't even let her open the window um, in her room. And all she had was just her little half of a room that um, was not even able to go outside from there. I mean, that that was a normal course for so many residents and so many of them died as a result um, of it or suffered significantly. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking about COVID-19 and long-term care facilities today with Lori Smetanka and Jasmine Travers. And we have a few minutes left. I want to come to the vaccination issue. We started with this discussion um, and, you know, everyone's on the edge of their seat in the United States waiting uh, to see as the vaccine becomes more and more 
available. I know that Jasmine, you study vaccine hesitancy. And I think that term itself, I did a whole week on vaccination and vaccine hesitancy in January on COVID calls. And I learned a lot about the history of that and the difficult issues that it, it raises. You were quoted in a New York Times piece very recently talking about um, vaccine hesitation um, among staff uh, working in care facilities and among older residents. I just want to read one thing you told the Times. You, should, you said we should not just chalk up a refusal um, here in this case to get a vaccine to that person's own wishes. We also need to look into ourselves and understand how we are approaching it. We can't tiptoe around the subject. It's one thing to want to be respectful, but we have to interrogate people around how we can better support them. I thought that was a really uh, great quote and opened up for me a lot of um, sort of questions that I think you probably spend all day wrestling with yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about this this issue and how we're coping with it? Yeah, no, thanks, Scott. Um, so just kind of this like whole idea of vaccine hesitancy, and it definitely has been this buzzword, right, um, for a number of months and kind of thinking about like who's re- hesitant and who's accepting and, and all of those kinds of things. And, and the basis for that quote was, um, you know, like going beyond hesitancy, right? And we're saying, okay, why is, why is, why are these groups hesitant? You know, what's going on? Okay. We, I feel like we've gone into that, right? We've, we dug deep into that. Um, but where is the actual work? You know, where are we saying, you know, let's go ahead and put in work. Let's go. Let's not just say, okay, these groups are hesitant. Oh my goodness. What are we going to do now? Or let them be hesitant. They've always been hesitant for these reasons, but let's try to reclaim, you know, trust. Let's actually invest in these um, communities. Let's show that we care and we need to actually care, right? We need to rebuild trust. Um, and these are these are the things we have to address the concerns that are in these communities, and we have to connect with community partners that will help. You know, when it comes to building this, this trust, so we just can't leave it at you know these groups are hesitant. Mm-hmm. Specifically, though, within the nursing homes, and you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, Scott, when you when I was talking about. Um, you know, this lack of attention to specific essential workers, for example, nursing assistants, right? Nursing assistants make up the largest proportion of nursing home workers, and they spend the majority of time with uh, the residents within nursing homes, right? Uh, But we saw that they were neglected when it came to resources and supports early on. And then now, even when thinking about the vaccination, in long-term care, vaccination has always been lower in, in regard to influenza when compared to hospital settings. And then it's been lower among certified nursing assistants. Even now with COVID, we've seen vaccination lower among certified nursing assistants, and we've seen it lower among um, those who are Black and Latinx. So the thing is, are we going to sit there and say, okay, continuously seeing that they're more likely to um, say that they're not going to get the vaccine? where some say that they're gonna get it later on, they just don't wanna get it now, or we're really going to actually include these groups into the conversations and into the decision-making, because this is something that we neglected to do from you know many years back. We should have already been including 
um, nursing assistants and other workers in conversations, in decision making, in resident care, you know, hearing, you know, what they're seeing, what's going on, how can we better support you instead of talking at them and, and not talking with them, you know, um, that's it. That's an issue that I am mostly I've been advocating for that in regards to including nursing home, uh, nursing assistants and meaningfully thoughtfully including them as part of the interdisciplinary team, which the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services has required that to happen, but they've allowed flexibility in what that looks like. But then now within the vaccinations, bring them into these um, vaccine campaigns, have them be ambassadors, right? It's mm -hmm. going to support the efforts when you include them as part of the rollout as opposed to this is what um, is happening and you need to either comply or you don't, you know, um, that's, that's the biggest thing that I would say. And then there's just a number of issues or a number of um, strategies. And, and Lori talks about there's, there's not really any like best practices across the board, but one thing that has been helping is some, um, some nursing home facilities have been bringing nurse, nursing assistants in and other workers in to just really understand, you know, why have you um, refused the vaccine? And, you know, how can I uh, like just really support you and being empathetic in regards to what that looks like? And I'll say one more thing. Um, so, for example, I was giving and this wasn't specific to uh, nursing assistants, but I was giving a presentation on just vaccine on COVID vaccinations. When someone in the audience, these were teachers and um, family members and parents of, of students like high school students and someone in the audience chatted and said that I must be working for the, um, the pharmaceutical companies based on the ways that I was advocating for the vaccine, right? And, and what I take from that is, is that I wasn't being, um, I wasn't showing empathy. I wasn't sharing, you know, or, or coming down and recognizing the concerns that people have, right? I'm here saying the vaccines are effective, they're safe, right? And that's like the headline. But instead, you know what, myself, I was hesitant to begin with. I wasn't sure. It was too fast, right? And I understand what you're feeling and where you're coming from. So if I changed my approach, it, would, it wouldn't look like as me supporting, you know, this former pharmaceutical company, but instead it's this person who gets my fears and gets my concerns. And now I'm going to really listen and open up to hear what they have to say. But Jasmine, that's so hard because this pandemic has, like it or not, kind of pitted um, those who would be with science and those who would not. And it's forced people into these two corners. And it's not just the presidency of Donald Trump, although that played a role, but just the political polarization of the country where somehow, um, you know, denying the vaccine or denying the virus became a kind of a, a, a rallying cry for one political party or a subset of that party. So then when you go into those conversations and you try to have a nuanced conversation, and you start with empathy and you start with listening, it feels like the room's already sort of loaded up for, for conflict. And I don't think it's always been that way, or maybe it has, and I, I don't know. But I mean, Jasmine, just to give you chance to respond, because it sounds like what you're describing is not just a need 
to approach this with a tone of empathy, but also you have to kind of address the whole last year of political strife in America. How can you possibly take that on all in one meeting with uh, nursing home care staff? Uh, Scott, that, that that is tough, right? And I'm not saying that it's going to happen overnight. Um, it's not going to happen overnight, right? And it's those continued touches. And that's why I say you can't just say, you know, uh, what do they think? Say, uh, throw out the baby water. What's, what's the term? You know, you can't just say, be done with it, right? right. Like, it's it's too much. It's too hard, right? It's good. It's going to be every little touch, you know, uh, where people will come around. And you have to also think about um, when we first heard that a vaccine was being developed, right? And where you were and what you were thinking. Were you already, or were you on the side of, I'm most definitely going to get it? Or were you on the side of, uh, I don't know, you know, I'm a little, you know, um, squeamish about it, right? And what got you to turn around? For me, I am a scientist. When thinking about my networks and what I'm privy to based on social media, the different webinars that are always coming to my emails, all of the different information that I have access to, and then reading that information and seeing, okay, this looks like a trusted resource. Oh, this person looks like me, and they're actually part of the development. So now I'm trusting it. I'm, I'm privileged in that manner. When thinking about other communities who don't have this type of information that's always around them and the type of information that they have around them, which is, you know, misinformation, that's what's going to just kind of continuously, you know, ring in their ear. So we have to also consider that too, right? So listening to people, providing them, you know, correct information, authentic information, but at the same time, not um, putting putting them down for what they've heard as well, because that's going to create, you know, barriers and tensions between the two people. Right. And so it's just like any political conversation. Right. Because, you know, if you if you're there just like battling out, you're not going to go anywhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. Sure. But the stakes here are so high because in that battle, if it's over the Thanksgiving you know, dinner table and you don't like what your uh, you know, uncle is saying, and you will see. I'll see you. I'll see you next month, or I'll see you next year. Um, but here, it's it's the stakes are much higher, right. and, and I death. think it's right. Yeah, Lori. I mean, just to anything that Jasmine was just talking about, you wanted to comment on. We're we're almost up on time. I have one more question I wanted to get to. But Lori, go ahead. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's it's critical. I mean, we've we've seen. Um, the the hesitancy from staff and I totally agree with Jasmine you have to meet them where they are figure out what the concerns are and how can you address those concerns and it's not a one and done it has to be an ongoing educational experience and the same is true for residents while we while the vaccination rates among the residents themselves are much higher at this point um, residents we've talked to all were very concerned um, and at the same the same you had to meet them where they are and get them the information that they needed that made them then comfortable to make the decision to get vaccinated. Um, You can't force it on people, but it is critical. We've seen the vaccination rates have been critical in terms of watching the numbers decrease um, in terms of the spread of COVID and the deaths in long-term care facilities. And that's what's also spurring on getting families back in. So we really do need to get this moving forward and figure out a way to make people feel comfortable with the vaccines and get them the information they need that will allow them to feel comfortable to accept it. So we're almost up on time, but I had one more thing I wanted to raise. And uh, Lori, to you first, 
you know, I'm putting myself here in the shoes of, um, you know, I'm thinking about my grandparents a lot in this last year. And of course, you, nobody wants to go into a, a nursing home, probably if they don't have to, but even into any kind of congregate living um, situation or an assisted living facility. I would think long and hard before I went into one of those facilities now. Mm-hmm. Keeping in mind, of course, the decision not to has its own implications in terms of cost. What, where can I afford to live? Or can I live with family or a brother or a sister or a cousin or find a group of neighbors and somehow we form a community? I mean, I would be thinking creatively and be thinking long and hard, particularly based on everything I've heard from you both today about problems with regulation and preparation and transparency in the industry before I just assumed, well, somebody must be making sure that I'm going to be healthy and I'll move right in. I wonder if you share that view um, or, or more generally what you think about the long-term impact this is going to have on people's decisions to move into these kinds of of care facilities in these kind of living situations. I think people absolutely are rethinking their decisions. And I think there's increased pressure to um, make other settings and options, excuse me, available for people in order to receive care. People generally want to stay home. They want to stay with their family. And I think as a society, we can make that happen. And um, I think that now there's increased pressure in order to do that. As I mentioned earlier, we've been moving a little bit in that direction, step by step, where there are increasing supports for the availability of Medicaid to allow people to stay at home, even helping to pay sometimes family caregivers to provide some supports. But I think we're really going to need to see that on a much bigger scale in order to help people stay home. Um, And I think as people are looking at their options, you know, we also are going to need to rethink what nursing homes look like. Um, The nursing homes that were smaller, that had um, fewer residents in them, fewer people coming and going, they did much better um, than the bigger nursing homes with lots of beds and lots of halls. So I think we need to relook at the structure of what we're paying for in nursing homes. But as people look at their options, they really do need to be asking questions about staffing levels. They need to ask about COVID rates in the facilities. They need to ask about emergency plans. Really, they need to be educating themselves on what are the services they're getting, what are the protections, and what are the plans in the facilities to protect them if they do have to go into a congregate setting. Jasmine, just the last word from you. Thank you, Lori. Um, Just last word to you on this. Yeah, I agree with everything that Lori just shared. Um, you know, we nursing homes cannot continue the way that they've continued. They've been going on for these past years. It's an absolute need to redesign nursing homes. And a piece that came out last year uh, was titled "Defund Nursing Homes." Right, but it was with this idea. Like, I, I, I don't, I. I don't want nursing homes to go away, right? Nursing homes aren't going away. We need to redesign nursing homes so that it can meet the needs of our um, most vulnerable populations and create this home-like environment. So what um, Lori was talking about and describing um, is in regards to these small nursing homes 
the greenhouse model, you know, they have about eight to 10 um, members within their setting and they did very well. You know, it's, it's this place where dignity is maintained, you know, respect is maintained. It's decentralized. The staff are happy. You know, the residents are happy. Um, it's a place where you don't go in and you feel like you're in a hospital or you're in a ward, but you feel like you're in, you know, your home. There's, there's, there's private rooms. So what does nursing homes look like after this? And when thinking about the questions that we ask, right, it's, it's so easy for us to say, you know, um, family members, make sure you go in and you uh, research the nursing homes, but they don't know what the questions to ask, right? They don't know how to assess these nursing home quality metrics that really aren't even reflective of the care that is being delivered in the setting. Um, so we really just need to make nursing homes, for one, accountable when it comes to person-centered care, when it comes to staff, and when it comes to turnover. We need to include those into the metrics as well, right? Where turnover is a metric that is measured so that now nursing homes are um, investing in recruitment and retention efforts. Uh, where person-centered care, whether it be satisfaction surveys by residents and family members, that is uh, satisfaction surveys um, among these members, that is part of the metrics as well, so that we're really investing in quality care and person-centered care um, in these settings. And then also with this whole idea of defunding the nursing homes, it's saying, you know, it's it's making sure we know where these monies that nursing homes are receiving, where they're going. That a percentage, you know, whatever that percentage that we say is is the sweet spot that is going towards staffing, that is going towards quality care, instead of just giving um, you know, these nursing homes, whatever, and say, do whatever you want with them so that we don't see those cuts when it comes to staffing and then providing the supports that nursing homes need. And yes, you know, there were a number of supports, but what does like um, this temporary staffing look like um, when nursing homes are in need for the next type of emergency? Uh, so just kind of this whole idea, reframing, mm -hmm. reimagining nursing homes, but also thinking about how we allocate um, various funding and providing additional funding towards areas that need more attention. You are both such powerful advocates. Uh, I just, I'm so impressed um, with the efficiency that you can make these, <laughs> make these arguments and cases. And I know today isn't the first time you've made these cases. So um, you're really on point, but I, I, I really have hope that you're right. I mean, this should this should launch an era of reform around yes. nursing homes. And um, I'll have to bring you back in a few months to check in with you both and see. Maybe we will see some positive uh, signs along these lines. But it, I think it also won't happen in, as you, we've been talking about ageism more generally. I think there'll be a there'll need to be a political movement which will transcend okay. some of these more specific recommendations that you've both both made. Um, I just want to remind folks that uh, you can catch COVID calls at 530 uh, every weekday, 530 Eastern time every weekday. And tomorrow I'll be talking about historically black colleges and universities and public health in Nashville. So please do join me for that conversation. And just to thank my guests again, Jasmine Travers and Lori Smitanka. Again, I've, I've kept them too long, longer than I said I was going to keep them today, but it was such a, I learned so much in this conversation. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank a pleasure you. to be here.
Yes, likewise. A lot of fun. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow at 530.